Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, the new era is underway at St. James's Park. Was the first game for Newcastle under the Saudi regime a tasteful one? Elsewhere, is Mohamed Salah really the best player in the world? And we'll ask if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is finally under pressure at Manchester United. This is The Game. Hello again. Welcome back to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Alongside me this week, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Tom Roddy. Uh, Alison, want to start with you. You were at Brentford this weekend very quickly. What a performance from the keeper, Edu Mendy. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not often you go to a match and you come away feeling privileged to have watched a goalkeeper in action. And uh, I did. And uh, I honestly think on Sunday morning, about 70 to 80% of Brentford fans would have woken up and said, wow, what a great victory against Chelsea. And then it would have taken them quite a few minutes to realise, no, they didn't win at all. It was just save after save after save. Um, there's a trope now with Brentford that they they react really well to anything that goes wrong for them. And they were pretty much outclassed in the first half. But um, once Chelsea had taken the lead, they really went they really really went for it I, you don't often see that they were they were almost a different team just just creating in different ways so you had a spectacular overhead kick and then you had some nice approach play and you had pace you had everything and uh mendy just stopped them all yeah superb performance from him tom i know you watched uh, manchester united's away trip to leicester we're going to talk about that a little bit later on gregor were you in scunthorpe <laughs> It was. Why are you so sort of surprised, you? Well, I thought, I thought it was a tad harsh what you wrote this weekend. What did you say about the club? Demise of one spirited club. It's a club that, you, that was been in the championship twice this uh, this century, which for a, a town of about 80,000 people is no mean feat. A few years ago were consecutive uh, League One playoffs and now they're looking doomed like they're going to go out the Football League altogether. Bit of a sad story. A guy's, another story of a guy who's ploughed in £20 million since 2013 into a club that size and the result is looking like relegation to the National League. So that was my column this week. Cheery stuff as ever. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Cheery stuff from Gregor's journeyman column you can read uh, in the Times right now. But he does lead me nicely on with a sob story in terms of money in football to the big story of the weekend. New investment, of course, at Newcastle United. Their big day, their first game since the takeover 
And it was an incredible atmosphere. It was euphoric. But in the end, a 3-2 defeat at home to Tottenham Hotspur, just to set the picture for you. I mean, songs rang out outside St. James's Park. Some old, some new. Who the F of PSG? Saudi mags. Manchester City, we're richer than you. Some of the new ones uh, on offer. There was applause for Yasser Al-Rumayan, Newcastle's new chairman, the public face of the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the PIF, the new 80% owners of the club. Guests on the day included, of course, TV presenters Anton Deck, but more importantly, Amanda Staveley, her husband, uh, Murdad Kudusi uh, as well, and a host of others. Uh, aside from that, the TV coverage criticised for maybe embracing sports washing. There was no real mention uh, of the horrific abuses of the Saudi regime. But um, I think it was a big day for the Newcastle fans. Tried to enjoy it as much as possible. Outside the stadium, the only real, I guess, negative news, a poster was driven around the ground saying Jamal Kosoji murdered uh, second of the 10th, 18. That's a reference to the journalist that was uh, it's heavily believed was dismembered at the order of the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed Bill Saman. I mean, it was just one of those days. The fake shakes were out. Costumes were there in abundance. It was a big day. It was a great atmosphere for the fans who were focused, of course, on the football. And let's speak to Martin Hardy, our Northeast correspondent from The Times. How are you, Martin? I'm fine, Hugh. Quite a day when the, the, to, go, to walk around the, the, the ground in the city before the match. Uh, um you see, seeing people who hadn't been to the ground for 10 years who had boycotted Mike Ashley. As I said the other day, you, you end up quite conflicted by it all because it's an incredible roar when the new chairman appears and you're thinking you, you can be uncomfortable with what Saudi Arabia stands for and their record. But a lot of people were saying, look, that roar was because Mike Ashley has gone as much as for whoever is incoming. With an hour to go, the Wi-Fi went off. With an hour to go, 4G went off. Uh, the stadium was still full of sports direct signs. Um, Steve Bruce was still the manager. After 25 minutes, there was a reminder that the thing that needs to be concentrated on is the Nikasinated team. The Nikasinated defence is not good enough. Five of the, the back six came up in the championship four years ago. Uh, in the piece this morning, I've said there are gates that were to the entrance at the top of the stadium about 25 years ago, which were found on John Hall's land, which they did up. And in a big, in, I can't think of anything more symbolic of Ashley's reign than the fact that they plunk these gates round the side of the stadium, and if they, they can't actually open them, and if they did open them, they'd walk into a massive brick wall, and that's a, that symbolises all the little details that they got wrong, and therefore, when you watch the team, you think your recruitment was so bad, you forgot to invest in your defenders. Obviously, the miss Martin Dubravka. The, the, the first thing you have to do is sort out your back four. You have to get two best centre-halves. You get, have to get best centre midfielder. So for all the euphoria, the team's still not good enough. And it, it, it's, as soon as, you know, five, ten minutes of being played, Newcastle did all right. But you thought, it's, all, all Harry Kane has to do is to remember how good a player he is. And Newcastle are beaten and that's not far off what happened. And then, the, the, you know, the atmosphere then fades away from that. And on, then we have the, the extremely worrying moment in the 40th minute when, a supporter is uh, taken seriously ill in East Stand of the ground, and thankfully, this it, it's revealed this morning. One of the, it's a doctor, Tom Pritchard, um, who works in Middlesbrough, and as he go, goes over as a Newcastle fan, begins CPR and activates the, the defibrillator on the fan in a science stadium. And it turns out now that Tom Pritchard works temp, uh, works part time at Middlesbrough Academy, and thankfully the, the fan is now in hospital at the RVI around the corner and is doing okay according to his son. 
so yeah, it was a, it was a day that had I think just about everything. That was dramatic, but I think um, brought everyone you know back to reality a little bit as well from the start of the game too. Um, and it was great to see the way that the players reacted. Sergio Reguilón, Eric Dyer, and the Newcastle players too. To be perfectly honest, Jamal Lasell going over there and the players being taken off. I just wanted to ask about Steve Bruce, though. He was prickly with the press before the game, Martin. Uh, afterwards, he said he will carry on the best I can, he said. Do you think there's going to be a change in his position soon? Because last time we spoke, you thought it might happen before the game. I think we're at the case now where they would like to have somebody to come in um, before they relieve him of, of his position. At the minute, I don't think they're quite 100% sure of who that is. You know, the long been... A, the theory that Graham Jones was going to come in and the previous regime said to me that will never happen and the new regime who will have come in um, you know Graham Jones' managerial record is one season with Luton in which they got relegated <clears throat> and it, perhaps this epitomises the Cassie United that he is next to Zinedine Zidane in the bookmakers charts to become Newcastle's next <laughs> manager and nothing says how bonkers that place is better than that than a Champions League winner is, is wrestling for control of the team against somebody who got relegated to Luton so yeah, in terms of what happens next, I think they would like somebody with experience, re- ready to come in straight away before Steve Bruce gets the position taken off him. As you could see yesterday, once the euphoria of the start of the game faded and once the team really began to struggle, then the fans turned on Steve Bruce again. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult position for the team to be in and for the manager himself. But uh, as I said, they want somebody to come in with experience before they relieve him of his duties. I mean, takeover or not, I think his job might, might have been at risk at this stage with the same results. That I'm genuinely not sure of because, <laughs> my, no, no, seriously, my, if, you, if we're going to go back, Mike Ashley stood by Alan Pardew, who faced far worse than what Steve Bruce is getting at the minute, went through bad runs, was bloody-minded enough to uh, eventually... Ashley was working against the support squad a lot of the time. He would have waited. <laughs> what, what, the, what the new owners, the Saudis do, I, I suspect will be a little bit different and quicker. I just wanted to talk about this, the sign that was in the ground as well, because this is a mighty town built upon a solid ground and everything they tried so hard to kill. We will rebuild, words of Jimmy Nail. <laughs> um, but but there, was a, there was a spirit. That, that, that great philosopher, yeah, go on, sorry. <laughs> Well, it meant enough to the Newcastle fans to put it in the ground. So Yeah, yeah, no, no, sure, sure. I, I just wonder how long that spirit lasts because it, it did seem to be a very unified Newcastle United inside the stadium if results don't change soon. The club have got the fans back now. The fans will be with the team for as long as it takes. They're just not with Steve Bruce. The, there is an incredible unity now to, uh, amongst the supporters. Getting rid of Ashley has brought a lot of people together. There is a curiosity of now... If, how big the ground needs to be. If you bear in mind, when Ashley was there, they were still getting mid 40,000. Thousands and thousands of fans had given it up. The, the support is unified now, but they need a better team. And it, can a manager impact upon that team? Perhaps. But you go back to what Benit- Rafa Benitez said loads of times, short blankets. He said, the only way you can do it with this team is if you, if you really defend as a unit with six or seven players. Steve Bruce has tried to give Newcastle fans more what they like to watch, which is more of a flair version of football. And unfortunately, he doesn't have the players to do it. So he, him and Rafa Benitez end up in the same position, which is that the squad isn't good enough and the recruitment isn't good enough. 
So, Tom, Alison, Gregor, what did you make of the scenes we saw at St. James's Park this weekend? Alison? I'm really interested to know from each of you, actually, because, well, quite often, actually, when I sit down to watch a game um, for pleasure, I don't know, I often don't know till the game's just about to start or it's 10 minutes in who it is I actually want to win the game. I don't, you know, it might be might be two teams I have no affinity for particularly, or I, I can I can balance pros and cons for both. And before I sat down to watch Newcastle v Spurs, I, I just wasn't sure how I just feel about the concept of it. And I found I got increasingly angry and unhappy and annoyed with the coverage, the complete glossing over of all the build-up to to why this was a controversial takeover. I just started to feel slightly nauseous at the um, the Saudi, uh, you know, tea towel look. The um, the the as, as though it was funny that they were dealing with a, a country that has an appalling human rights record. Um, every single pundit didn't didn't want to say anything other than things like. Newcastle fans deserve this. And that's something that really winds me up. I don't know why they deserve it more than anyone else. There's a sense of entitlement at that club. People, I think the media are scared of Newcastle fans. The only time in my career I've had abuse for praising a team was because I praised a uh, Steve Bruce performance. Absolutely ridiculous. So I just found myself just finding the whole thing utterly distasteful. And I wondered if anyone else on our esteemed panel, found that they felt emotions they weren't expecting to feel as they watched the game, both the previews and the match itself unfold. I definitely had felt conflict, but I don't know if that's anything new. I just, I've, I've actually felt the opposite. I felt really happy for the seeing the Geordies and the place throbbing in black and white beforehand, thinking, you know, there are, but then also, you know, just always there's a cloud there. And I don't know if that's ever going to go now. That's the thing I was left feeling. As happy as they are, as much as this is like those first, 10 minutes or whatever before before reality bit were like a glimpse of the joy and the potential and what the future might be. I just found myself thinking, there's just always going to be a cloud over St. James's Park now. I don't know how, if or when that will ever dissipate. So that was it. I just... Just the conflict, really. Um, I agree. I agree about seeing seeing people dressed as as uh, Saudis and whatnot. And but again, I actually somehow find myself feeling. I know it's very easy to just to berate people like that when. And I know there's a lot of what aboutery has been has been at play in this whole whole episode. You know, there are people who know far more detail and reality about the Saudi state. You know, people in in government and people. That, <laughs> Elite level, you know, high levels of high end business who trade and deal with Saudis, and, and that people just think that's expected. And now some working class fans in the stadium are, are, are feeling some joy. I still don't think what they're doing is right. I, d- I just don't like the fact that people berate them either at the same time. I think overall, from print to broadcast to digital, I think the, the coverage has been has been good. I thought the 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 actual match it just felt a little too sort of ceremonial to me it felt like a it felt celebratory like a, more like no because ce- celebratory would be okay because it's celebrating this is what i'm i'm trying to say is that the it would be okay if it was celebrating the end of the ashley era but there is elements of that and that's what we keep getting told the joy is the end of the ashley era but it was seeing people walking around wearing um 
wearing the headscarves, that felt very uncomfortable to see. I think the thing is we keep getting told that it's it's positive in a way because it's highlighting the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, but how long does that actually last? It it, it gradually dilutes, doesn't it? How long do, do people keep talking about that? And this felt that the reaction to the chairman coming out, that I, I, I don't buy that that's about Ashley being gone. I see it as this whole, in inverted commas, lottery thing, you know, with the, the, the talk of the where they'll be in, in five years' time, in 10 years' time. Uh, you know, you don't want to berate our colleagues in media. What we do is maybe slightly, slightly, very slightly different to what they do on, on Sky Sports, for example. But um, I really thought there would be in the build up to it a considered maybe more journalistic piece about either sports washing or the Saudi Arabian regime, even if it lasted three minutes. I don't know if, if the Newcastle fans would have felt that was fair. It doesn't happen before every Manchester City game, for example. But I, but I did think it was, it was an opportunity to highlight the issues. I wouldn't have expected them to do it on every Newcastle game for the rest of forever. But you would have felt during the first match there would have been something. I was just a bit surprised. Um, I know others have mentioned the commentary and um, this sense of, of you know, how, how Newcastle had, had won the lottery and it was more of a celebration of the money that the Saudi Arabians were going to bring into the club. Again, probably a bit distasteful, but I don't want to, you know, insult people who've been doing the job for a lot longer than I've been alive. Um, and, and they probably know best. I agree with a lot of what's been said by other journalists in terms of the coverage. I have to say it's exactly what I expected before I turned the TV on. You know, I didn't think really that there was going to be anything, anything negative. I thought maybe if there was protest outside the ground, you, you imagine the, cameras would have picked that up. Maybe that would have lent itself to a natural discussion on the topic of sports washing. But um, but I, I imagine Newcastle fans and Newcastle, the club, would have complained if there was anything more serious from the broadcasters. So um, so you know that there's politics in, in, involved in it. The day as a whole, you know, it was nice to see, I agree with Gregor, it's nice to see the Newcastle fans happy. I, it's a club that I really like. The thing for me that stands out is it is still the old Newcastle, even though they've got new owners, still the same team, still see Steve Bruce, still the same St. James's Park, still feels like the Newcastle that we all liked. When it moves on from that and there's a new stadium and Harlan's up front and Jose Mourinho's in the dugout, <laughs> I'm not sure we are going to feel the same way. So it was good to see that there was at least one day of that warmth before the stars start pouring in through the, the, the door to the training ground and we start feeling a bit different about, about Newcastle United. On the performance though, wow, they do have issues at Newcastle right now. I know it was 3-2, but, um, but when the third goal went in for Tottenham, I, I was kind of thinking, we want five, just because I thought it would be funny for the headlines, but there you go. Um, but they, they do have issues, just like Martin pointed out, Gregor. Oh, God, yeah. I also found it ludicrous that Steve Bruce was in charge. I think it's just absolutely ludicrous. He's His own fans, as I said last week, were, were joining in the chance of you getting sacked in the morning. There were ironic quips in the build-up about the romance of his thousandth game in charge being at his boyhood club. The guy's enduring something that he, I don't think he wants to be there. He's just waiting for his payout. Just put him out of his misery because it is misery. He's also not doing the club any favours. I, I disagree with Martin earlier about Graham Jones. I think Graham Jones would do equally as good a job. I think he's probably got as much respect from the players. The players know that he's, his time's up. He doesn't matter to them anymore. That's going to impact performance, I would say. I should also say, like, 
just to be fair to Graham Jones, he didn't get Luton relegated. <laughs> he was sacked just before. <laughs> they, <laughs> no, they weren't relegated. Uh, Nathan Jones came in and kept him up. But that, that also slightly glosses over the fact that he's worked worked for, with Roberto Martinez and is a hugely respected coach and worked in international football. So he would do as good a job just now. And if not him, bring someone in on temp- a temporary basis. Just get rid of Bruce. It's not fair on anyone. But the team... I mean, again, I said it before, I said maybe there's four players that you think have got some future at the club, but I think I was probably generous, actually, after after watching that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Sam Maximan, Willock, just because he's only been bought recently and, you know, he's still a fairly unknown. Callum Wilson, maybe in the next season or two, but after that, I doubt it. And that's it. That is it. They are in big trouble. They need, you know, there's a, there's a real chance that they could go down. I think they need to change the manager quickly and they do need investment, but it's going to be... It's going, to have to, it's going to have to be sensible investment in January. The slow and steady thing is out the window, given how bad they are. If they were a mid-table team looking quite safe, you, thought, you think they might wait until next summer before, but I think they need five or six players in yeah, January, but, but, which, which means the spending's going to, you know. But with realism in mind, like for where they are in here and now, not for where they're going to be in five years' time. So, you're, you know, you can look to some that are going to be young players who might be able to go on the journey with them, but they also need some players who are going to help keep them up now, not get them in the Champions League in three years. Oh, no, I I'd, I'd be going for experienced players who have six months left on their deals. You know, you don't have to spend as much. The Jesse Lingards, the Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's of this world. Maybe you can get Ross Barkley on loan to the end of the season. There are players with Premier League experience who can get them to mid-table who they could probably bring into the club in January if those if those players want to join Newcastle United. I'm sure they will. I, I do want to ask you, Tom, about the need for a Premier League statement around the Newcastle takeover. Um, Jurgen Klopp highlighted this last week. He says the chief executive, Richard Masters, needs to say something and, and say it soon. I know you spoke about this before, Gregor. It's reported today, though, that the Premier League clubs are pushing for the removal of the Premier League chairman, Gary Hoffman. Do you expect that something will be said and should it be said very soon? Uh, I can still hear the stable doors swinging. Uh, it's, it's a bit. It's, it's, it, the, the right time for it has, has has gone. It still needs to be. It still needs to be done. But um, the right time has gone. It should have been the day the takeover happened. The day it was announced. Richard Masters is is under pressure to say something, and it shouldn't take Jurgen Klopp to say it. It, it, the, the statement should have come that day. And it, the problem as well is that you've kind of got a, a balance between why clubs are so concerned about this. Is it is it the issue of of um, of human rights and uh, a, a country owning a football club, or is it the another sort of financial power coming in and the inflation of the the very likely inflation of wages and transfer fees that it will produce um that doesn't that doesn't really matter right now now we just need sort of transparency from the premier league to explain the process to explain why they've let this happen because as Jurgen Klopp said, if if this is a case of let's give it a go, it's not really acceptable. That's an interesting point because you know there's conversation in this in this guy's studio afterwards about about Spurs and like people saying that they don't invest in the squad very much. But <laughs> Spurs have been run on a kind of on a very economically sound basis for a long time, and what they've done and the way they've their journey, their rise 
you know their, their spending in comparison to to some of these clubs, these now state-owned clubs, is is minuscule. So it's understandable if they were to feel like you know we're we're doing things right. We're we're getting grief from our own fans now for for not investing, for not trying to take that next step. But the next step's a country. Like it's under it's such understandable if they feel a little bit like how are we supposed to compete in this climate here? So that is an interesting point. I mean, it, I'm sure Tom's right. I think. Probably both things are at play. They think inflation, but also why was I saw at the blue? I guarantee you, if we get a statement today or this week, it won't it won't satisfy anybody. No one's going to sit up and say, "Wow, what an incisive, interesting, enlightening statement from the Premier League." It's going to be full of nothing. It'll be nothing. It'll be vanilla. Should journalists then get the chance to speak to Richard Masters, Alison? Absolutely, but I don't think they will. And if they, for some reason, they allowed it to happen, the answers would be vanilla. I refer you to my previous answer. You'd get a lot. Yeah, there'll be a two-minute segment on BBC News or something explaining what the process was. That's like that's the kind of that's the kind of statement we'll get. Dalton's right. We won't we won't hear anything about the legally binding uh, assurances that they've had. I, I don't I don't see how that's possible. Okay, well that's Newcastle United. The new era is underway. It was, as I say, a euphoric first game at St James's Park. Not the result the fans wanted, though. We'll see if that spirit is there in the coming weeks. Should Steve Bruce stay in charge and the results stay the same? Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about the other end of the table, Liverpool in style at the weekend. Is Mo Salah the best in the world? Liverpool hammered Watford on what was a chastening return to the Premier League for their new manager, Claudio Ranieri. Uh, Roberto Firmino getting a hat-trick for Liverpool, but it was all about the performance of a certain Mohamed Salah. Another incredible solo wonder goal in the game. His manager, Jurgen Klopp, saying he is the best in the world right now. Alison, I'll give this one to you. Is he? Well, you know, when you're thinking of John Joe Shelby on the one hand and then you've got Mo <laughs> Salah on the other. No, uh, I, I mean, the answer to the question has to be yes, simply because try and make a case for someone who's more watchable and makes you sort of gasp in astonishment. Not that he wasn't already a, an amazing player. It's just that he's just of late been scoring the sort of goals that look like you make them up rather than they can actually happen. Um, and it's it's seamless. There's a just a, a sense that, that Liverpool as an attacking force are very comfortable. It's making Mo Salah comfortable and he's just having fun. And it, actually, it's interesting, isn't it? Because great forwards, they often have to work very hard for those little, little moments in the sun you know, a chance to win goal of the month or to get a bit of extra praise for the way they executed um, a goal. But Mo Salah of late, it's like everything he does. It doesn't have to be his amazing goals. It's everything he does, his his movement. I actually enjoyed more than his dinky, dinky, balletic goal against Watford. I enjoyed the first goal more where he, he his pass was just executed to perfection and so unselfish and that means you know he's happy if he's happy to set up a colleague and I've written pieces about how you know to be a, a good top level striker you've got to be selfish that was the most unselfish act he, he he just laid it on a beautiful golden plate for his 
colleague, Marnie, to score. And it was, I mean, I squealed more for that than I did his, his individual effort. So it's not just that he's scoring beautiful goals. It's the whole, it's the whole deal, isn't it? It's the, it's the way his, his whole demeanour, the way he's acting, he's setting up his colleagues. It's just you would you something you cannot buy to go back to our discussion about what billions will bring you. You can't buy that. That's called chemistry and getting the most out of innate talent. It's just absolutely wonderful to watch. And yes, of course, he's the best in the world because I cannot think of someone else I would rather watch at the moment. I mean, the message to Newcastle's new owners, you, you can definitely buy it. And uh, if they don't give him a new contract, uh, it might be sooner rather than later. Just saying, Alison, just saying. Gregor, what do you think? Best in the world, Mohamed Salah? I mean, on current form, yeah. We, yeah, we don't watch Liga every week. And Mbappe's the only player that I think leaps out at the moment who'd be competing with him. But on current form, no, I think he's he's the best at the moment. I don't think I've ever seen a drag back or a drag kind of back and forward like that for that goal in my life before. It was exquisite. And I agree with Alison. That first goal, it was like, it was just a shoulder to shoulder with Danny Rose. And within like three seconds, it was a goal. It was ex- just extraordinary kind of incisive forward counter-attacking play. It was just incredible. And James Gerbrandt's piece today is really interesting about they're creating more attempts and shots on goal than they ever have before. They're averaging like 20 plus a game since the back end of last season when they kind of had the renaissance and managed to Get, get, get back in the Champions League. They're having fewer passes per shot as well in the opposition's third. So that indicates like far more direct, kind of ruthless, savage counter-attack play. And we've seen it, you know, we've seen it time and time again this season. They've been they've been an absolute fire. I just, I, I must pinpoint again, another non-offside for the third goal. Firmino's second, Salah was offside. Again, there's like, He's behind the defender's shoulder again. We had this conversation last week as if he's supposed to know when, when, and when to and when not to, to drop. So anyway, it, it, could have been, it could have been more than five. Watford were torn to shreds. Tom, is he the best in the world? Is it going to be a full house? Yeah, I, I think the, um, the one other person uh, I would mention is, is Haaland because of, because of the goals. I mean, I think he's got 18 goals in 12 games for club and country this season, which is, which is extraordinary. But the the thing is, it it kind of goes back to the conversation. I I can't even begin to imagine how many times it's been had about Messi and Ronaldo being two totally different players. One, the kind of machine and and one, the artist. And I, I completely agreed with Alison in that I just, the first goal. I don't know what it is about left-footed players, at, but the the, co- the combination in that goal of a left-footed player hitting the ball with the outside of his boot and it just arching all the way around and these desperate defenders trying to get it. It was just the perfect cocktail for a goal, really. And, and also there was, I saw Michael Laudrup talking about Messi the other day and his growth in Spain and at the beginning defenders didn't really know what to how to handle him because he was so good on the ball. But you knew he'd run at you. You knew there was kind of that one, that was all that was in his mind. He was a one-man team. But then as he developed, he became more of a team player. And that that does strike a little bit with, with Salah in that there seemed to be this real battle between him and Mane in recent years. That doesn't seem to be there as much anymore. There seems like a real unity. And I think as well, in if, if Liverpool go on to win, if they did win the Premier League title, I think it'd be one of 
the biggest achievements after a after a summer in which it almost looked like they were not in trouble but financially slightly being cut adrift with Chelsea spending how much you know 100 million pounds on Lukaku City spending 100 million pounds on Grealish United the money on Sancho and Varane and Ronaldo Liverpool couldn't couldn't do that and yet they are the best team to watch at the moment yeah, I mean, I tend to disagree that it would be a huge achievement if these guys that had won the Champions League and the Premier League and the Club World Cup had won the, the Premier League again. They're that good. Jurgen Klopp's that good. The fall was that precipitous as well. <laughs> it was it was immense. It was a shock. And so to come back from that would be a hell of an achievement. But I think that was the evidence of what we all know about Liverpool and, and, and what is still there, which is the depth isn't there. But if they get their best 11 players on the pitch, they're as good as anyone. We know that. So I think at the moment they're in that period where a lot of their team, they do have a couple of injuries, but a lot of their team have stayed fit so far this season. They're playing brilliant football. I think I've spoken before, I think about this and the fact that I think to play the way that they do and the way that Manchester City did, I think I always feel that three seasons at such a high level, you know, over 90 points pretty much a year, three years on the bounce and winning all this stuff, there was always going to be a, a little bit of a lull with the pandemic, without their fans in the stadium. It was almost, I know the results were bad, but a bit of a breather. I always felt Liverpool would come back very, very strongly, but maybe not this strongly. I mean, it looks like they are the best team in the country right now on their day. Three or more goals they've scored in all of their six away games in all competitions. No team in history in the top flight has ever started a season like that away from home. So they don't just seem like they've got the best player in the country. There is an argument to say they are the best team in the country. Alison, I want to avoid you for this one because frankly, I've had enough of it. Gregor, are they the best team in the country? We swing from one to another with this. Chelsea started the season as favourites and they started on on fire and Liverpool did too and they kind of went toe-to-toe. Chelsea have dipped off a little bit. Liverpool, I'm sure, will at some point. You know, you're talking about they've got their best best 11 players back on the pitch. Look at that midfield. It was Naby Keita, James Milner and, and Henderson. I'm not sure that's their, their best midfield. That, I'm not sure that's like in the top six best midfields in the country. <laughs> so, you know, they have their, their base, their rock at, at the back. He's returned and that allows them to push that a little bit higher up the pitch. This has all been said before last season. We knew we knew that was a big part of their kind of hesitancy of for playing their game, for really pressing and chasing and hounding and harrying opposition and being brave enough to step up and do so. That's back. And the midfield is, is, a, is an engine room and the front three are just on fire. So that's always been Liverpool's blueprint and their strategy and when they're at their best. And, you know, although there are some moving parts and particularly in midfield, if the front three are on song like they are just now and they've got the base at the back they're going to be they're going to be right up there are they unstoppable right now tom no they are stoppable i think they've they've uh, they've benefited recently from playing against teams who who play the way that suits them you know the watford brentford who are going to go for it norwich who are very poor i mean uh, just remember that a game against Chelsea where they just defend, they went down to 10 men and defended and defended and defended and it didn't look like Liverpool were ever going to score. Uh, and I think they benefited from playing against some some teams that have suited their style recently. But I do think they're the best team 
uh, in the country at the moment if those two things go together. Alison, as good as Liverpool were, how bad were Watford? Oh, it was uncomfortable watching how bad they were, actually. And there were mitigating factors. She says um, that she cheered another goal hit in the back <laughs> of the net. So uncomfortable with this. Yes! <laughs> You're, you're allowed to have complex thoughts, or is it only women that can do that here? I don't know. Uh, I don't get a great deal of joy out of my team hammering a team that aren't playing well. That you know, I'd rather it was five nil at Old Trafford next week for obvious reasons. But there were the reason I say it was uncomfortable was someone like Danny Rose, who's had a, a great career. I mean, he was he did something you don't often see. He gave up. He decided it was better not to move than to move badly. And that is uh, that is astonishing when you're talking about Premier League football. He just did he just had enough of being embarrassed. And the mitigating factors are yet another new manager. There is actually a finite number of new manager bounces you can get. And I think maybe Watford have just proven it. It's just there wasn't a bounce at all. What there was was, oh goodness me, what are we meant to do now? They shifted from playing Three at the back, five at the back, four at the back. None of them worked. Um, a lot of players seemed to be playing slightly out of position. They didn't know what they were doing. There were great holes in on the flanks, which suits Liverpool because they have great fullbacks. Then there were holes in midfield. It was a very disjointed, muddled performance with individuals looking like they just didn't want to play football anymore. So I don't think you can extrapolate from this and say... Liverpool, the best team in the country, um, was, I, I think most clubs in the top half would have would have had fun at Vicarage Road. Given all that, it's just that probably the last sort of team they wanted to play was one in, in the sort of frame of mind that Liverpool were in. Can you see Claudio Ranieri turning it around? Well, they, they can't get any worse, so there will be some improvements for sure. I, I, I don't see how you do worse than that. But... I don't know if you if you, if if I'm right and there isn't going to be no new manager bouts, then I think they might go in the opposite direction. They were sort of doing ho hummy, and now they're going to be sort of drifting away. I think I'm I'm sceptical at the moment. Problem is, he did he had them for one day. I think you know what. I'm not blaming him. <laughs> I'm just saying he he had them for one day. Uh, Watford obviously saw the international break as the right time to make the change. It was quite entertaining going to see him last week and Ranieri was talking about how, you know, they had the players, they they just needed to to get back on track and and it was all about sort of improving them. So it wasn't a case of firefighting but growing and going up the table. And then the idea of Liverpool and Klopp's Liverpool coming on Saturday and he said, this is not a game that I've missed. So he he, he expected what happened to an extent. I doubt, I doubt it was to the extent it was. I mean, it wasn't, I think it was about half an hour in or even half time and the possession was about 89% in Liverpool's favour, something like that. Just outrageous dominance but he, he needs to make them more solid defensively and tap into what Saar can do really Big job for Claudio Ranieri at Watford but things going swimmingly for Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool and, and Alison you say you know 5-0 against Manchester United next week I don't think that's impossible we're going to discuss their defeat uh, at Leicester next but remember if you're enjoying the podcast rate us leave us a review and of course make sure you're subscribed as well Manchester United are up next 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Manchester United's 29-game unbeaten run away from home was halted by an impressive 4-2 win for Leicester City at the King Power this weekend. It ignites a pretty poor start to the season for Brendan Rodgers' team. Yuri Tielemans and a returning James Madison pulling the strings instrumental in midfield. Uh, Tom, you were there. What do you think was so key to Leicester's win? The stark contrast between the two teams, Hugh, was the way in which Leicester played these really lovely combination patterns all across the pitch. And United were just entirely reliant on individual moments of brilliance. So actually, I think the Mason Greenwood goal sort of summed up the match in a way and summed up United in that they're this group of of excellent individuals that do rely on those moments and if if they don't come about often enough and if they come against a team like Leicester who who will hustle and harry them the whole time I mean, it was it was quite it was incredible to see Jamie Vardy in the I think it was the ninety third minute chasing down Wan Bissaka, winning a free kick that leads to Daka's the fourth goal for Leicester and Daka's goal dive. Buy in a free kick, yeah. I wanted to jump in there too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this discussion, had discussion so many times. He's the best in the business at it. It was yes. a foul, but he bought it. Brilliant. <laughs> yes, yes, but but you you did not see a single United player do that the whole afternoon. They they don't play with that intensity at all. The midfield was so easy to pass. Um, and it, it was just it was just so easy for for Leicester. Um, I don't United just don't play as a team. They don't play as a unit, and it was in, entirely contrasted to what Leicester are and what they represent. I mean, Brendan Rodgers said at the end, "This is this is this is us at our best 
when we play together, when we press, when we're aggressive. And it was the total opposite to what United were. Uh, Tom, 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 can I just ask you, though, not that I'm obsessed with the ratings that uh, my colleagues give players. Oh, no. did, you, did, you give, did you give Cristiano Ronaldo six because he's Cristiano Ronaldo? <laughs> I was tempted to give him seven because he's Cristiano Ronaldo. But uh, I, I, gave him, I gave him six because I didn't – I, I always think of ratings. I start six – and think if you do stuff well, then you bump up to a seven. If you do stuff badly, then you bump down to a five. I didn't see him do a whole lot, so that was that's my that's my justification. You're not doing the rule. The rule. Well, okay, that's is partly because I've been at the Times for six hundred years. But the rule <laughs> is five. The baseline is five. Five is what you do. You know, if you get a five, that shouldn't be a huge insult. It just means you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Where would you get six from? Where would you get six from? I'll recall all the papers and and Harry Maguire might end up as a two in that case then. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Harry Maguire there, Tom. He seemed to be thrown in, not fit. It was a real tough afternoon for him. I don't entirely blame him. I I think it was one of many strange decisions that Solskjaer made. I mean, you've got Eric Bailly sat on the bench who, at their best, no, he's not better than Harry Maguire. But the way things were going, from I think it was the sixth minute, the first time Maguire properly touched the ball, straight out of play and it just did not improve from there. He was getting jeered by the Leicester Leicester fans the whole time. He he was so slow. He was so off it. He was at fault for the the equaliser for Tielemans gorgeous equaliser where he gets caught in possession by Leicester pressing him by Ian Acho, the intensity of Ian Acho. Everything he did pretty much um, was well below par, but take him out of it. There was an opportunity to take him out of it and get by in there instead. And and you have a similar situation as well with, with the midfield. You've got Pogba and Matic playing in midfield. I always think Pogba is... We know he's far better playing on the left of a three. So do that. Um, you've got Donny van der Beek sat on the bench. Matic, who kept getting caught in possession too and looks looked far too old for that game. He looked ready for retirement in that game. So bring in Donny van der Beek as well. I just don't know how many times we can go around these same things with Manchester United. You must be pulling your hair out, Hugh. It's like... We, you know, we just keep talking about, we talk about their midfield. We talk about why they're not getting the best out of the players there. What are they? What's their identity? You think, you know, people, are, there's this stats going around about how how few presses Ronaldo has done this season. He's like, by far and away, fewer than any other striker. You know, you knew that when you, when you bought him. It's not like that. It's not like Manchester United are a pressing team anyway. So he'll score goals. He's not going to be part of a coherent kind of pressing unit. But as I said, Manchester United never have had that under Solskjaer. So the biggest question is, what are they? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> they're, 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 no, they're, they're just a big bag of nothingness. And this, they have the, and those individuals will go and win games because they're great players, some of them. We saw Mason Greenwood's goal, the absolute worldy. They've got so many talented players that they will win enough games, but there will always be this trough. The cycle keeps going round and round. And at some point, Ollie's going to have to jump off. Gregor, you say you don't know how many times we're going to keep mentioning the same problems with United. The, the difference, I think, today, there seems to be a tilt away from 
faith in Solskjaer, just generally. The fact that Pogba said afterwards, De Gea said afterwards, we have to change things. So when you get players saying that, that's not a good sign. His post-match interview, Solskjaer, did that thing that managers in trouble do, which is they disassociate as though there's this entity happening to the team rather than it's about what they give the team. So the, these, the, I think this is the first time I've thought, oh dear, this might be the beginning of the end, actually. Regardless of how long his contract is, there's a there's a mood swing, I think. Well, it's easy to, you know, it's easy to correlate the players' remarks with Solskjaer, but I don't think anything else we've seen is that new, actually, personally. I think we've seen him look like a lost puppy in, uh, in front of the cameras after defeats, and we've seen runs as bad as this before, and they'll, they'll probably go and win the next few games. And no, they won't, because it's Liverpool results. next. It's Liverpool so what next, if they do better all. against the big teams? They do better against the big teams, Alison. So Well, they, they need to. They'll lift themselves. I think the main difference, as a Manchester United fan, I do think this these, these what, four defeats in the last seven games have been different. I think the start of this season for Manchester United has actually reeked of arrogance a sense that they actually thought they were at least the second best team in the country and they'd added Cristiano Ronaldo and Jadon Sancho and Rafa Varane and they were just naturally going to improve, actually. You know, firstly, although we've criticised tactically how Manchester United have played and been easy to play against and play through in previous games, Leicester just wanted it more. You're watching a game and it was like, this could be an EFL game, it could be a Sunday league game. One of the teams wants to win and they're doing everything they can to win, and another team isn't. You know, the way that Manchester United were just giving the ball away as if they didn't care. You know, the, the, the lack of intensity, the lack of application, aside from poor tactics, you know, we've seen them get outplayed by Villarreal at home. Villarreal should have scored four, I think, in the first half. But there wasn't a lack of intensity, there was a lack of structure. We didn't know what Manchester United were trying to do, and the players clearly didn't know what the manager wanted them to do, if anything at all. This game just simply looked like Manchester United's players were jogging around. They didn't know when to press. It, they weren't, no one was even taking it on themselves to run around a little bit. You know, sometimes you get one player who just gets frustrated and decides, I'm going to chase this ball all over the pitch because something needs to happen. There needs to be a spark. Someone needs to put a tackle in. There was none of it. I mean, it was 11 comatose players for the entire game. And Leicester, because of the way that they went after victory, the contrast was huge. I mean, it was just an ocean of difference between the two sides. That, for me, I agree with Alison, is the biggest worry because it looked like, it, I mean, it must have been a lack of belief in what the manager wanted them to do more than anything else because they just, they weren't there. It wasn't that they weren't at it. They weren't at it, but it wasn't just that. They weren't there mentally. There was something totally lacking. I mean, Paul Pogba's response, Day's response, you can try and read between the lines if you like. But I mean, it was just two schoolboys basically who'd been caught, you know, caught red handed trying to explain to the headmaster what they were doing, you know, and they had nothing. They had nothing to say because it was quite apparent to everyone what the issues are. You know, they can hold their hands up and say, we don't know what's going on. Well, really, it was like, why weren't you running? Why weren't you sprinting? You know, it was just like so obvious. But there you go. I've spoken so much about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I agree with Alison. Things have tilted slightly for some people <laughs> towards it being the manager's fault. Some others remain consistent with their view that he probably isn't the manager uh, for Manchester United. I don't always want to reflect on on the manager, though, because like I say, I don't think he, I don't know if he deserves all the blame. I don't know what you guys think, but, you know, the players at some point, highly paid, 
very impressive for their international side. You know, on the pitch, they didn't react. And I don't know why that is. Does anyone have an idea? Well, no, look, what, what you say is true, that you can, if you're kind of slightly disillusioned with, with uh, the way you've been sent out to play, or you're not entirely sure what it is, what the plan is, then it can be a bit demoralised. And even if it's just 1%, it reflects in the performance on the pitch and what looks like application. I don't think any player ever goes out and doesn't try or doesn't run around. They just see that if they run and close someone down there, they'll just pass it around them to the next, you know, to the next player and play a triangle around them. That's that's more to do with the plan and the setup and, as I say, a disillusionment with it. So you can also say, you know, Pogba come out, come out and say that Pogba was abject. So, so so are almost so is almost every player on the pitch for Manchester United. But you know, it's it's complicated. I don't just think they're not trying. And as you say, the contrast is just was just remarkable because it boils down to what Tom Tom said at the start. It's a team of individuals. It's like watching a poor man's Man City against a poor man's PSG in the, in the Champions League. They have, they have Man United or the PSG. They've got individuals that can go and win the game, but it won't happen every, every week. Schmeichel came out afterwards and said, this is what this, is, this suits us, this shape. Johnny Evans was able to come back in. Sayunchu looked a different player because he was alongside them. They could play the back three. Tielemans was back on song. Ianacho and Vardy were hounding everyone. Madison was getting in between the lines. That shape and system suits them and Leicester were outstanding. But they looked like they knew they had a plan. They knew what they wanted to do and they executed it. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. And I think Leicester deserve all the praise. It was great to see James Madison uh, looking back to his annoying best buzzing around the pitch, but some quality passes through midfield with disguise as well. I think that opened up the attack uh, for Leicester City. Quite a run though for Manchester United between here and the end of November. Atalanta, Liverpool, Spurs, Atalanta again in the Champions League. Manchester City, they've got Watford, but then Villarreal, Chelsea and Arsenal. So um, we're going to find out a lot about whether they can rediscover the the, the right mentality, I think, is what Paul Pogba described it as uh, over the coming weeks. Maybe it was a bit swift to say that one of the next few games, maybe a few draws. <laughs> You'll pick a few, buy a bit of time with some draws. Go on, uh, They need to find something. I've said it before. It's sad for me as a Manchester United fan to have to say it. They are a better team when Fred and McTominay start in midfield. Um, there's more running, there's more energy, there's more tackling, there might be less quality on the ball. You know, I've said this about Manchester City needing to play the most natural striker as a forward. They need to play their most natural holding midfielders in holding midfield. I don't think they can fit Sancho, Greenwood, Ronaldo, Fernandez, and Pogba into a starting eleven as they did at the weekend because there will be no protection for that defence. Um, so Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, like, like I think we all know, made some some pretty big decisions in the Leicester game. And I think that's what cost his team. Um, but we'll see. Does anyone think he'll last that period? Are you confident he will stay as the manager, Tom? I think he could. It's doesn't the, sound like the, confidence it's, though, it's, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't sound confident. No, but I think, I think it's amazement really that he could. Uh, it, it feels like the... The boardroom at United is similar to the pitch in that it's just content with this position of stagnation, really. That's what it feels like. And and when you hear the, the talk of social media interactions that, that they've achieved, it's and yesterday, uh, sorry, on Saturday, I think it was only about an hour after the game, immediately the message was out, Ollie's not under pressure here. And they know the games that are ahead. They know the games that are ahead. 
Ed Woodward's still not got a date for his departure, really, have we? So he'd be the man, certainly one of the people having this conversation to, to if a decision was going to be made and he's going to be leaving soon. So, yeah, I don't think he's going anywhere. I'm sure United will do something good in that very tricky run to keep him, keep him in the job. Does anyone think, just finally on this before we go, Cristiano Ronaldo should probably be dropped by Manchester United? No, if you don't want back these headlines, <laughs> you know, spiking the pressure even more. That's the thing. When that's the thing with signing him, it's like it's just going to be a walking kind of circus around around Ronaldo all the time. Whether he's playing, whether he's scoring, whether he's not, it's, that, that heaps even more pressure on. No, he scores goals. He'll score. He'll score enough goals to justify his place in the team. I think. I think, but he has to. He has to build the team around him. If you accept that, you're not going to drop him. If you're not going to treat him like you would treat any other player, a team which has too many good players on paper. If you're going to accept he's different and, and almost almost undroppable, then you have to build a team around him properly. Not, I mean, it's a bit haphazard at the moment. I think Solskjaer would be well served if he just accepted for this season, Ronaldo is the superstar, uh, the one that gets everyone excited. As Gregor says, he's actually pretty reliable when it comes to goal scoring. He does lack certain things that the Premier League require you to have, such as uh, pressing and unselfishness. So just build a team around him. And that might create some odd decisions and you might end up dropping players that everyone go, wow, really? But you ha- I think that's probably, if he wants to stay in the job, that's what he has to do. He has to decide. He has to be bold and say, right, I'm building this team around Ronaldo. If he doesn't press, I need to bring in players that do. Well, we'll see what happens with Manchester United. They've got a busy week, Atalanta and then Liverpool. Liverpool playing Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. Chelsea taking on Malmo. Manchester City against Bruges. We'll round that up the next time we speak and look ahead to a big weekend in the Premier League. But Alison, Gregor, Tom, thank you for being with me. Thank you all for listening as well. Uh, Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, make sure you're subscribed and make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times as well. Go online, check it out, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game if you sign up today you will get yourself one month free we'll see you on Thursday small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.